0: You know, our mission statement here is love people where they are and encourage them to grow in their relationship with Jesus Christ. Let's just say that out loud together. Here we go. Love people where they are and encourage them to grow in their relationship with Jesus Christ. And you'll notice there's two parts of that statement. There's the love people where you are and then there's the encouraging them to grow. Now, let me just ask you a question. Which part of our mission statement do you think think is tougher to live out? It's, it's, It's the love them where they are, right? It's hard to love people where they are sometimes. In fact, uh, if you're new to church, I'm going to let you in on a secret maybe you didn't know. Now, if you've been around church for a while, you know this. We don't really say this out loud, but here's the secret. It's okay to raise hell and be a real extravagant sinner. See, you didn't know you were going to hear that at church this week, and you're like, wow, this is my kind of church, see It is okay to raise hell. It is okay to be a real extravagant sinner. I'm talking lots of sex, drugs, and rock and roll. You can rob banks, hold up liquor stores, drown kittens. You can do whatever you want to do as long as you're an outsider and you've never been an insider. And the reason it's okay is because, see, if you ever decide to be an insider, if you ever make the decision to follow Jesus, see, you'll make a great story. We'll interview you, make a video about your life. You may even get a book deal out of it, right? But here's the thing you need to understand. Once you're on the inside, once you cross that line, once you become a Christian, a follower of Jesus Christ, see, then you're part of the family. And if you screw up then, you can kiss that kind of forgiveness and and acceptance goodbye. Because now that you're in the family, you're making us all look bad, right? And no matter how much you repent, no matter how sorry you are, I can tell you whatever you've done, it is going to be on your permanent record. It is probably going to define you. You will forever be known as Al the Alcoholic or or, or Thelma the Thief, whatever it is you got yourself into. Now understand, that would be without a doubt a traditional church position. Here's the problem. I don't think Jesus held that same position. In fact, Jesus was the one who came along and said, you know, it's not the healthy who need a doctor. It's not the healthy that you need to get to the hospital. It's the sick. Jesus had incredible passion for the sick. And knowing that, one of my biggest frustrations with Christians is that when someone blows it, when someone screws up big time, instead of us coming alongside of them and helping them, do you know what we tend to do? Attack, punish, judge, sometimes just ignore altogether. For example, maybe somebody gets off course and their marriage blows up, or maybe, maybe they get off course and an old habit resurfaces in their life, or, or maybe they have kids, right? And every parent knows what that's like. I mean, until they can move, it's pretty good, right? But once they start crawling, let's be honest, it all goes downhill from there, you know? I mean, yeah, there's a couple of good weeks between one and six where, you know, know, things are going well. And and maybe there's a fleeting moment or two where you think I'm actually raising a little angel, right? And then one day the phone rings and it's the school. And you think, what happened to my little angel, right? And then they become teenagers and it is as if they are actually possessed by Satan himself, right? (laughs) Head spinning around, you know, just crazy things going on. Mark Twain got it right. He said, listen, when a kid turns 13, put them in a barrel and seal up the barrel. Feed them through the knot hole. Right? When they turn 16, plug up the knot hole. He understood how to raise teenagers. But maybe it wasn't your marriage. Maybe it wasn't your child that blew up. Maybe maybe it was you that blew up. This is where Christians often blow it. There's something inside of us that feels like when someone messes up, we have to judge them. They need justice. And what justice in our mind means is they got to pay. They got to pay for what they deserve. They got to get what's coming to them. Now, here's the problem. Deep down in our hearts, we know as Christians it's wrong to feel that way. Deep down in our hearts, we know that it's wrong to treat people that way. And the reason we know that is because we know that is not the way that God has treated us in the relationship we're in with him we know because we all screw it, we all blow up big time, that whenever that happens, you know what God does? He extends to us mercy and grace and forgiveness and love and acceptance. And so we have this tension in our lives as Christians, being what we want to be, judge people, we love to do that, favorite indoor sport, or being more like God. And so since we have this tension, we don't know how to deal with it. So we come up with catchy little cliches, you know, like, well, you know what, we have to, we have to love the sinner and hate the Sin, right. love the sinner and hate the sin. And I have found that that is actually pretty easy for me to do as long as I'm not relationally or emotionally connected to the person who's actually doing the sinning. I found that it's pretty easy for me to love the sinner and hate the sin as long as that sin hasn't somehow touched or impacted my life. But here's the question. How do you handle it when it's someone that you're in a relationship with? How do you handle it when someone wrongs you or they sin or they fall off the wagon? H- how do you handle it when they get involved or choose a lifestyle that now touches your life? How do you handle it when they do something that actually costs you some of your time or even worse, maybe some of your money? My guess is you handle it the same way I do. We suddenly feel like we've got to do something. We've got to take some kind of action. Maybe we need to convict them. Maybe we need to point something out. Maybe we need to somehow punish them. After all, if we don't do something, that person's just gonna think that everything is okay. They're gonna think there's no consequences to their bad behavior. I mean, if we just love them where they are, they're going to assume that we just condone whatever they've just done. Let's be honest. It's easy to love the sinner and hate the sin when we really don't know the person who's doing the sinning or that sin doesn't touch our lives. But I'm telling you, when it does, our lives are flooded with all kinds of emotions. Sometimes it's anger. Sometimes it's disappointment. Sometimes it's frustration. Sometimes it's grief or sorrow. We feel all sorts of things, and the tendency for those of us who have been a Christian for a while, you know, we want to we want to go meet with this person, and we want to grab onto some verse, and we want to somehow you know work it into the conversation. Say, "This is what the Bible says," right? Or if you're a parent, you may say to your child, don't you remember? And you remind them of some principle that you, you taught them as a child. Don't you remember that principle? Or, or if you're a child and it's your parent that screws up. You go to them and say, mom, dad, don't you remember what you always taught us as kids? And you remind them of that principle. My point is this. When someone we're in a relationship with makes a bad choice, they make a bad decision. It is never, it is never an emotionally neutral environment with all the emotion that's swirling around, sometimes it's really, really, really hard to love the sinner and hate the sin. Let's be honest. Sometimes, sometimes it's just easier to just go ahead and hate the sinner too. Now, this is a tension we live with every day in our relationships. Thankfully, the word of God addresses this tension. And we're going to look at a section of the Bible this weekend. Maybe you've read before. Maybe you haven't read before. But in this passage, The Apostle Paul addresses this question. What do you do when someone you love? In other words, this is someone you're emotionally or relationally connected to. What do you do when someone you love chooses behavior that you consider to be wrong? You know to be wrong. They make a bad decision that hurts you financially, maybe relationally. It hurts your reputation. Maybe they make a decision that destroys your marriage. How do you do the right thing without making the situation worse? Or how do you do the right thing, which may lead back to a restoration of the relationship? If you have your Bible this weekend, turn to the little book of Galatians, Galatians chapter 6, verse 1. We're going to begin there. If you don't have your Bible, that's cool. We'll put the verses up on the screen. Understand that uh, Galatians is one of the epistles. Of, by the way, the epistles are not wives of the apostles. Okay, epistles, they were the letters that were written to the churches that were established in the first century. And there was a little church in Galatia, and Paul wrote them this letter. Now, understand, whenever you read a book, whether it's Ephesians or Philippians or Galatians or 1 and Second Timothy... Uh, Paul is addressing issues that were going on in the church and so somehow Paul had heard through the grapevine that there was an issue in this church at Galatia something's going on and the Christians there didn't know how to handle the situation obviously someone had fallen someone had wronged someone someone was coloring outside the lines and like we don't know what to do with it and so Paul writes on this and this is what he says in chapter 6 verse 1 Brothers and sisters, and right away, we know that he's writing to Christians. He says, if someone is caught in a sin, and when Paul says caught in a sin, he doesn't mean that you you walked into the bedroom and you caught them in the act. That's not what he's saying. This word caught refers to someone who is entangled. They're ensnared. They're in something that they just can't get out of. We would maybe say they're caught up in a sin. So he says in verse 1, brothers and sisters, if someone is caught up in a sin, You who live by the Spirit. And that's not a sappy term that Paul uses for the spiritual elite. He's talking about any believer, any Christian who is committed to living the Christian life. He's talking about just the average Joe Blow Christian who's just trying to get it right. So Paul says this, when you know of someone who is caught up in a sin, he says those of you who aren't caught up in that sin, verse 1, should restore that person. Notice he doesn't say you should ignore that person. You should judge that person. He doesn't say you should punish that person. He doesn't say any of that, but I can promise you this. If you're in a relationship with someone and they've chosen a lifestyle or maybe they've made a decision that's hurt you, maybe some way impacted you, I guarantee you that you had an emotion that made you either want to stand back and judge them or walk away and just ignore them or get involved and punish them. Do you know why? As I said earlier, when someone close to us hurts us, does something wrong, wrongs us, it is an emotionally charged situation. And it brings stuff to the surface of our lives we don't even want to admit is deep down inside of our lives. And so you'll notice Paul adds a little word at the end of verse 1. Brothers and sisters, if someone is caught in a sin, you who live by the Spirit should restore, there's our key word, restore that person gently. Now why does Paul add this word gently? gently. It's because see he knows that as Christians it's our tendency to rush into a situation like a like a bull in a china shop and say, listen, I'm right, you're wrong. And you're at my mercy because it is God and me against you, right? And we probably have all had those conversations, especially if you're a parent. So Paul reminds us, listen, the agenda isn't to punish. It's not to ignore. It's not to judge. The agenda is to restore. And to restore someone, Paul says, listen, you need to understand you're going to have to put on the emotional brakes and you're going to have to go in gently and you're going to have to go in humbly. Do you know why? It's because anger, anger, is one of the emotions that you're going to experience when someone close to you does something wrong to you. And do you know why you're angry? You're angry because, see, they're not doing what you think they ought to do. Or they're not doing what you raised them to do. Or maybe they're not doing what you thought they would do in that situation. So you're angry. They're not behaving the way you want them to behave. It ticks you off. Now, if you've been a Christian long enough and you've been around long enough to learn the system, this is what you'll say. You'll say, I'm not angry because they're not doing what I want them to do. I'm angry because they're not doing, you got to say it the right way. I'm angry because they're not doing what God wants them to do. You got to say it like that to really emphasize it, right? I'm angry because they're not doing what God wants them to do. Liar. You're a liar. You know how I know you're lying? Look at the anger that surfaces in you when someone else does something wrong. Look at the righteous indignation that gets worked up in your life. And then look at the anger that surfaces in your life when you sin. Big difference, isn't it? I mean, let's be honest, it's much easier to get the whole self-righteous thing going when it's someone else who blows it, or not us hurting someone else, but someone else hurting us. And I think that's why Paul says here, when someone that you're in a relationship with hurts you, when they blow it, child, spouse, parent, roommate, neighbor, whoever it is, coworker, boss, Paul says you got to understand the goal is always restoration. He says that is the target. That is the destination. That is where Jesus wants to lead you. Now, you can choose not to go there, but understand, that's where he wants to lead you. And if you're going to go there, he says, understand, you got to go in humbly and you got to go in gently. And then he says in verse 1, if someone is caught in a sin, you who live by the Spirit should restore that person gently. But notice this but watch yourselves." Well, wait a second. <laughs> Why do I need to watch myself? Are you kidding? It's me, God, and the Holy Spirit. We're like the eighteen. See, It's the other person who ought to be watching themselves, right, but verse one, watch yourself or you also may be tempted. This word watch means to examine. And once again, Paul puts the focus, not on the person who's done something wrong, he puts the focus back on us and it bothers us because see, we're thinking it's, it's not me that's wrong, it's my child that's wrong, it's my wife that's wrong, it's my boss, it's my roommate, it's my friend. So Paul says, be careful, be careful. You gotta remember the goal is restoration. And if you don't go in gently, and if you don't go into that situation examining yourself, you will not restore. You will ignore, you will judge, you will punish, you will quote the Bible and guess right what? Everything you quote them, you will be right. But you won't restore them. And if you don't restore them, regardless of what else you do, you failed. You failed. By the way, what does Paul mean when he says examine yourself so you won't be tempted? When I was growing up, I thought it meant that you might fall into the same temptation like you got a friend that's in the strip club and you're like, I got to go get him out of the strip club. And you get in the strip club you're like, wow, I didn't know this was what went on in the strip club. And boom, there you are, you know. Or you got a friend who's in the bar, like he should not be in the bar. So you go to get him out of the bar and you don't want to, you know. So you just think, well, I'll have a beer with him. That'll make it simpler. And then before you know it, you're both passed out on the floor. I, you see, that's, that's what I used to think it was talking about. He's not saying that. He's saying when someone close to us hurts us, he says it's going to bring all kinds of crud up to the surface in our lives. For example, we know that anger surfaces, but do you know what else comes to the surface of our life? How about pride, right? Pride sounds like this. I can't believe you would treat your own dad that way. I can't believe you would treat your own mom that way. I can't believe you would make such a stupid decision and put me at risk that way. I can't believe that you would be so insensitive to me. I can't believe how you're treating me. I can't believe how you are embarrassing me. It's me, 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 me. So Paul says, you've got to watch yourself because when you're hurt, even when the other person is wrong, something inside of you ugly is going to surface. And if you act on what surface surfaces, you may fall to the temptation and you'll be as guilty of sinning as they are. But do you know what else surfaces in our life? Not just anger. How about fear and insecurity? And fear and insecurity sound like this. What are people going to say when they, they find out my daughter's pregnant? That's fear and insecurity. What are people going to say when they find out that my son has a drug problem? You know, what are people going to say when they find out that my spouse cheated on me? Fear and insecurity. So Paul says, listen, you'd better watch out because if you respond... From insecurity and fear, you are going to fall. So he says, listen, you got to step back. You got to take a deep breath. You got to gear down. You may be right. And the other person may clearly be wrong. You may have every reason in the world to be hurt. But Paul says, just be careful. Before you go charging into that volatile emotional situation, remember Remember, the goal is restoration. And he says, if you don't first deal with what surfaces in you, you may ignore and punish and judge. But you won't make any progress toward restoration. And then Paul continues by giving us the how-to of restoration in verse 2. He says, carry each other's burdens. The Greek literally says, get up under their burden. Let me tell you what that means, and I'll just warn you. This, is, this part is the convicting part. Paul says, You restore by taking on yourself the complications and the consequences caused by that person's sin. The complications and the consequences that's as a result of their actions and their behavior, to which we respond, <laughs> I don't think so. I, are you, I don't think so. I got my own life. I got my own family. I got my own financial situation. You're telling me this bozo, this jack wagon screws up big time, right? Makes a mess of their life, complicates my life. And I'm supposed to just walk right back into their situation and say, let me help you. How can I get up under this mess that you've created and help you get this resolved? It ain't going to happen. See, there's a lot of you thinking of a situation in your life right now. And that's what you're thinking. I don't think so, right? But look at the rest of verse 2. And in this way, you will fulfill the law of who? Okay, three of you. Let's try it again. <laughs> and in this way, you will fulfill the law of? Yeah. Do you know what Paul is saying? He's saying this. As a Christian, you've got to remember. He's like, remember, 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 remember. Remember while you were still a sinner. Remember. Christ didn't punish you. Christ didn't ignore you. Christ didn't judge you. But while you were still a sinner, Jesus got up under the consequences, the complications of your sin. And what did he do? He got involved. He loved you unconditionally. And then before he died and went back to heaven, he turned to his followers and he says, now I want you to go out into the world and I want you to love everyone the way that I have loved you. Even your enemy. Why? Well, see, now it all comes together because understand love your enemy, that's how you restore them. You see, restoration happens when you and I are willing to take on the consequences and complications caused by the person who sinned against us, who hurt us, who wronged us. We get up under the weight and the consequences of their sin with them. What was the term that Jesus used in Matthew chapter five when he said, love your enemy, agape, right? You know what we do when we, when we get up under the burden? We put their needs above our needs. We put what's in their best interest above what's in our best interest. We seek their highest good seat. that's That's what the word means. Did you catch the words earlier when Trey sang, brother, by the way, that was sick, All right, guys. He has more talent in his pinky nail than I have in my whole body. I mean, but um, here's the words, brother. Let me be your shelter, brother. Let me be your fortress. Let me be the one you call when you're low. Let me be the one. To, let me be the one. Let me be the light that brings you home. Just sat there writing as he was singing. Let me be the light that brings you home. you know why we can't do that? It's because we're so ticked off. It's because we're so angry. It's because we are just so hurt. It's because it's dredged up all of this fear and insecurity in our own lives. And so now we find ourselves, we can't help them. We're dealing with our own tangled web of emotions. So Paul says, listen, if you don't deal with this crud that comes to the surface of your own life, when you do deal with this person, you're just gonna push them further and further away. You're just gonna push them further and further into their sin and you will never restore them and you won't grow and they won't grow and it is just going to be a big mess. So this is what I want you to understand. Restoration doesn't happen by sitting around quoting the Bible. It doesn't happen by giving ultimatums. The only way it's going to happen is by being willing To get up under the consequences and the complications caused by their bad behavior. And if that wasn't enough, Paul adds in verse 3 and boy, do we need this. If anyone thinks they are something when they are not, they deceive themselves. You know what that means? He says, when when someone wrongs you, when someone hurts you, when someone does something that you never even thought you could never even imagine, he says, if there is anything inside of you that rises to the surface that says, there is no way I'm going to be involved in what you just talked about, not after what they've done to me. Paul says, then guess what? You're guilty of leading your own mind astray because somehow you've come to the conclusion That you're better than that person. And the reason that you've come to the conclusion that you're actually better than that person is because you've forgotten where you came from. You've deceived yourself. You're just lying to yourself. In other words, somewhere along the way, you've forgotten what Jesus did for you. Somewhere along the way, you convinced yourself that you were so spiritual, that you're above it all. Somewhere along the way, you convinced yourself, I would never do that. I would never find myself in that situation. And Paul says, listen, you can feel that way. But as long as you feel that way and think that way, you are absolutely worthless to God when it comes to this ministry of rest- restoration. Isn't that convicting? Oh, just for me. Um, by the way, have you ever noticed that read the Gospels when Jesus was on this earth? He basically spent his whole time going around restoring people. That's all he did. I mean, think about it. the Samaritan woman, the woman at the well. We love that story, right? Just so you know, set it up. Jews absolutely hated Samaritans. So much so that if a Jew had to go from, from southern Judea to northern Judea, they would go all the way around Samaria. So they wouldn't even have to come in contact with Samaritans. One day Jesus got up and said, I must go through Samaria. Yeah. And he runs into a woman at the well. And he knows all about her life. He says, Yeah, I know you. You've had five husbands. The guy you're living with now, shacking up with now, he's not even your husband. You're living in sin. He didn't say that, but I said that, right? You know, but he knew she's the village tramp, right? And so, but he didn't walk in and say, Don't you know that the law of Moses condemns your lifestyle? He didn't say that. You know what he said? Can I have a drink of water? I'm thirsty. And the woman looks at Jesus, this Jew, and she realizes that he doesn't have anything to draw water with. And she realizes the implication, this Jew is going to drink after me. That would be like you going out of here, finding a homeless drunk with a bottle and a bag and say, hey, you might if I take a swig off of that. That would be kind of similar, right? That's why this woman was like, are you serious? You would drink after me? And if you know the story, if you don't, go read about it. It's in John chapter 4. He didn't judge her. He restored her. Another day, Jesus was walking around town. He ran into a guy named Matthew. We've talked about Matthew before. He was a tax collector. He was, you know, he's just a loser all the way around. Ripping off the Jews, his own people, giving the money to the Romans. Everybody hated him. So if you're ready, you know, Jesus walked up to Matthew and said, You are a traitor and a thief. Nope. Jesus walked up to Matthew and said, Matthew, Right? Yeah. What are you up to, Matthew? Just ripping off my people. <laughs> Jesus is like, like, want to hang out with me and the boys? Yeah. And if you read the story, you'll discover that he reconnected Matthew with his heavenly father. And now we read his book all the time. This is what I want you to understand. These weren't repentant people. These weren't people that were remotely sorry about their action. These were people who were caught red-handed in their sin, and Jesus said, let me get up under the burden and the consequences of your sin, and let me help. The goal is always restoration. A few years ago when I started the church, we, we grew and I finally got to work full-time for the church, you know, got a salary like a real pastor. And, and we were getting ready to buy our first building. We were so excited because we found a mortgage company that said, we'll, we'll lend you the money to buy this little building. It was about a million dollars. And, and, uh, but the catch was I had to give up about 40% of my salary. So I had to go back to work like a real job, like you people. And, uh, and so about that time, I get a call, and there's a guy. I don't know the woman on the other end of the phone. She says, my husband he's a crack addict. He just had, may, had an overdose. Would you go see him in the hospital? So I, I go to the hospital. I remember going there that evening and talking with him. Immediately, I just liked this guy. And before I left that evening, him and I both were on our knees in this hospital room at Wake Med, where he accepted Jesus into his heart. But you know what? He was still a crack addict. And he kept messing up and blowing it and I remember one time I called a place in Charlotte that was supposed to specialize in crack addiction. And I said, hey, if I can get him in the car and bring him to Charlotte, will you take him? And and they said, well, you need to understand if he comes crawling in on his hands and knees, begging for us to help him, he has an 8% chance of kicking it. 92% failure rate. I'm like, great. So when I had to go back to work, he had a concrete business. And we talked and I said, I'll go to work for you. I knew nothing about concrete. Hardest work I've ever done in my life. But I would pick him up, and we'd go bid on jobs. We'd go do the jobs. I'd move concrete, wheelbarrow concrete. I would drive him around. I kept his credit cards. I, he had no cash, no ATM, because if he had any, he'd go to the crack house. But one day I'm at work, and I had a part-time secretary, and she says, somebody keeps calling and hanging up. I'm like, well, that's weird. And uh, so the next time they call, him, me answered. So the phone rings, and I answer. I said, I didn't say it was church. I just said, Hello? And on the other line of the line, that was quiet. Then a voice said, is this the Reverend Lee? I said, yes. Say, um, you know so-and-so? Yep. He's in my crack house. He's run up a tab. I can't let him go till somebody pays it. He told me to call you. <laughs> now, remember, I'm working concrete because... Lara's working, and we don't really have enough money to take care of our own bills, but I scrounged around the cash and went over to Rock Quarry Road and followed the guy's instruction. Here I'm walking up, you know, at the crack house. Howdy doody. And the guy opens the door, Mr. Crack Dealer, pay him the cash, get my friend out, take him home. Got a wife and three kids. Not too long later... Phone rings at the church. Mr. Crack Dealer. This time he had taken a co worker's truck because I wasn't with him that day. He took the co worker's truck, took the, tr- took the truck to the crack house, and gave the keys to the dealer. But then the dealer found out it wasn't even his truck. So again, to the crack house, be out the crack dealer. And, and I know people hear that story because people have told me oh, that, that's stupid. You didn't have the money to do that. Think about the danger you put yourself in. You put your family in. Let me ask you a question. Isn't that what Jesus did with us? He looked down at us and said, what a mess. What a mess they've made of their life. And maybe he looked at the Father and he says, is there anything I can do? What what can I do to help? And maybe the Father said, well, there is one thing you could do. Uh, Now, you'll have to set aside all the glory and the splendor of heaven. And you're going to have to, you're to, have to give up some of your attributes of being God. But this is what you could do. You could, You could become man, be born in a manger, grow up, live among those people, live a sinless, pure life. And then you could die on the cross for them so that their sins could be forgiven. And they could be restored back into a relationship with me. You could do that. You could get up under their mistakes and mess and help them. And Jesus said, I'll do that. I can do that. And it's interesting, if you read the Gospels, Jesus never once during his earthly ministry said to anyone, do you have any idea what your sin is going to cost me? Do you have any idea this mess you've made, how it's going to impact me? No. Nope. He just wanted to help. And I'm going to tell you, that is the first relational step toward restoration. How can I help? In fact, I want to just leave you with three questions. Here's the first one. When someone disappoints you, wrongs you, hurts you, what am I feeling? What am I feeling? Anger, pride, insecurity, fear. What am I feeling? Second, is what I'm feeling appropriate? By the way, let me just say this, and I'll talk more about it next week. Feeling angry at someone because they've sinned is an inappropriate feeling. An appropriate feeling would be disappointment, sadness, sorrow. But what are you feeling? Third, how can I help? How can I help? And I'm telling you, if you will allow God to work you through your anger, your fear, your insecurities, it will be clear to you what God wants you to do in that situation. It's really not that complicated. And we have absolutely no control over how the other person is going to respond. By the way, my friend just celebrated seven years of sobriety. We have, Yeah. It took him about five years to get there. But now he's on the street. We have no control over that individual. Our responsibility is to be the restorer. I got to go, but... Uh, this just, just story just came to my mind. When I was pastoring in Southern California, we had a women's princes, prison ministry, and they led a woman to Christ who was a drug addict and a, and a thief, and that's why she ended up in prison. And she was supposed to get, she was supposed to, this was when I was pastoring in Southern California, she was supposed to get paroled back to the Bay Area, and we went to court and pled for her to be paroled in Southern California where we were. And Lenny Mowen, my mentor, one of our elders, took her in, him and Evie, Evie, took her into the house, got her a job, bought her a car, got her on her feet. She did great for about six months. One day they came home and she had basically stolen everything that, of any value that wasn't nailed down. And I'll never forget our little church was about maybe four or 500 people at that time and everybody's like, oh, I hope we learned a lesson. You know, you know how we are, right, right? And I remember having lunch with Lenny one day and I said, Lenny, I said, how do you feel about that? I mean, you, you invested in her, you did all these things and she stole everything that wasn't nailed down. He said, you know what, Mike, all I know is I'm to be obedient to the things that God calls me to do. And I just have to leave the results up to God. Wow. Don't you wish we could get there? Now, I know what some of you are thinking. Well, wait a second, Mike. What if the person don't, doesn't want to be restored? Or, here's the big one. Uh, when does helping become enabling? See, that's our great cop-out. Well, if I help them, I'm just going to enable them. I'm going to answer those questions. But you've got to come back next week. Okay, that's next week. That's a hook. That's what we call a hook, okay? Cliffhanger. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your goodness. I wish I could live this stuff and not just teach it, but get us there, Father. Because it's one thing for us to say we love people where they are, but if we could ever really love people where they are, they would see you through us and you would change their lives. I believe that with all my heart. Get us there in our personal lives. Get us there as a congregation. In your name we pray, amen.